So, um, we have scheduling issues. Uh, there's annual conference coming up and all kind of things. And I want to make some progress in Joshua, right? So, we did Joshua's long day and had three, three messages on that that were all over two hours. And uh, that puts us in Joshua 11 tonight. We're going to do 11 and 12. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to warn you up front, Jen, you ought to be finding 11 and 12 since you got to read all of these beautiful names. And I uh, want to encourage you, nobody in the whole world knows the right way to say them. So however you say them will be right. Um, then tell you, you're going to quickly see that I use Joshua as a pretext to talk about what I really want to talk about tonight. <laughs> so normally, normally we work through every line, but the thing is, uh, as we read these two chapters, I want to take the most shocking theme out of the chapter and see if we can kind of unwind it, unpack it, and understand a little more about the heart of God and what motivates it. Um, having said that, uh, we probably will not be back in Joshua till after the annual conference, where we're going to take chapters 13 through 23 and talk about the division of the land and, and the tribes themselves, and we'll do it in, in large blocks. At the end of the letter, we will slow down again and, and really go through every word. And there's a reason for that. Um, I don't want to spend the whole evening talking to you about Joshua's battle tactics. Uh, I don't think that's what's most edifying to you. Um, I don't want to spend the entire time arguing about whether this particular Goshen is associated with this. or you know, there, there are a lot of those things in the coming chapters, but they have little spiritual significance. Okay? What we're going to do tonight is back off more than 30,000 feet. We're... we're uh, <laughs> We're going to get a downright celestial view. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So, Rob, why don't you pray for us? And then, Jen, when Rob uh, has ushered in the presence of God through prayer, yes. we, uh, we're going to pick up an 11 and read all the way through 12. When you get to that massive list, we'll all listen carefully for perfect diction. And then it's <laughs> Hittites, 
Perizzites and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with their troops and large numbers of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All of these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Memron to fight against Israel. Pause for just a second. I know most of those are, are not geographical regions that you have memorized. If you go to Israel today, the Sea of Tiberias, that we call the Sea of Galilee, is also called Lake Gennesaret. That is uh, a version of the word Kenareth here. Hmm. That gives you an idea. We're talking northern Israel. Keep going, huh? The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Memron and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mizroth, Maine, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put his king to the sword. Hazor has been the head of all of these kingdoms. Everyone in it, they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed. And he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all of these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded... Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off to themselves all of the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all of the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone all of that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all of the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah and the mountains of Israel and their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all into battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron, Debir, and Ab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from the, all the hill country of Israel. Joshua, Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it to him as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Mm. 
These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated, whose territory they took over east of the Jordan, from the Enron Gorge to the Mount Hermon, including all the eastern side of the Arabah. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, he ruled from Aror to the rim of the Enon Gorge, from the middle of the gorge to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. This included half of Gilgad. He also ruled over the eastern Arabah from the Sea of Kinnereth to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, to Beth Jeshmoth, and southward towards the slopes of Pigscah, and the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the last of the Rephi to reign to Asherpoth and Edri. He ruled over Mount Hermon, Sakselka, all of Bashan to the border of the people of Geshur and Mecca and the half of Gilead to the border of Sihon king of Heshbon. Moses the servant of the Lord and the Israelites conquered them and Moses the servant of the Lord gave their land to the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to the Mount Halak, which arises towards Seir, their lands Joshua gave as inheritance to the tribes of Israel, according to their tribal divisions, to the hill country, the western foothills, the Arabah, the Mount Slopes, the desert, and the Negev, the land of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Amen. We, uh, you can then see the list of 30-some-odd... Uh, Kings that all uh, have the designation one next to them. Um, in our weeks to come, we're going to discuss those in detail. So I wanted to start this evening uh, with one of the biggest difficulties that I think modern readers have to wrap their mind around concerning the pattern of destruction that God orders Joshua to impose on the inhabitants of the land. When you hear the word genocide, you think of people like Hitler, right? Uh, and yet God commands genocide here. He, the NIV uses the word exterminate. That's, that's a pretty serious issue, don't you think? Yeah. Okay. I'm convinced that the Lord's always right, that political correctness is always wrong. And yet... In a time period where we are in the Middle East all of the time and we're illustrating the differences between Islam and uh, Christianity and Judaism, uh, this is an important topic to me. And to understand it is an important topic. We're going to examine tonight the insight that the scripture provides as to why Joshua is ordered to exterminate these people as a group. Uh, I want to highlight the text that we're referring to first, though. Okay, so somebody besides Jen, since she just read that, who Abimbola. Take Joshua 11, 10 through 13. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hezor and put, it, put the king to the sword. Hezor had been the head of all the kingdoms. Everyone in it, they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed, and he burned up Hezor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounts, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. Mm -hmm. Do you hear that? 
we destroy this city, we don't destroy that city. We kill everybody in it. Sometimes we take the plunder. Sometimes we leave the plunder. Yeah. There is a pattern that develops in the book of Joshua, and it's, it's not random. They're not just casting lots. Look at it in Joshua 11. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, Joshua 11, 18 through 23. Who's going to read that? Steve Thomas. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. When you hear that phrase, and we're going to read the rest, does that sound like something that would normally be associating associated with God, exterminating them without mercy? Mm-hmm. Not normally. The next line provides a real uh, clue as to why. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Amalekites from the hill country, from Hebron, the Beer, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Amalekites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Let's talk about that for just a second. Number one, if right after he talks about extermination, he mentions the Anakites. The Anakites might hold a clue as to why there needed to be an extermination. Yeah. Secondly, which three towns did they leave in place? Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Do you recognize those? Yeah. Yep. Those, that are, that's where... Uh, rockets and RPGs are being shot out of towards Israel mm-hmm. as early as this year. That's The Project Iron Dome is to protect the population centers of Israel from these three cities. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's interesting that these three cities that didn't get unrooted are the heart of the hatred for Israel in the world today? Mm-hmm. And God said to root it out? There's a reason for that. And The Lord knows what he's doing. The answer to our question tonight might be found in the history and characteristics of the Anakites. We're going to delve into seven linguistic designators. Does it surprise you that there are seven? No. In order to discover a unique feature and origin common to each of the seven. By the way, these three cities are all under Palestinian control today. And the Palestinians that live there Uh, grow up in an environment where Israel does not appear on a map. They grow up in an environment where um, to die, killing a Jew, is uh, a guaranteed paradise. They grow up with the children shows on their TVs, glorifying the uh, Shahada martyrs. And um, it's been that way generationally. And I feel sorry for them. But you need to know that the rest of the Islamic world leaves people in a refugee status so that they can scratch that scab, watch it bleed, and blame Israel. And I have personally seen them set down arms and pick up rocks because cameras were nearby. Okay? Uh, Tonight, we're going to have an awakening to some spiritual principles that are at work in this particular passage. Before we leave Joshua, let's catch one more in Joshua 12. Who wants to read that one? Take Joshua 12, verse 4 and 5. 
in the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the last of the Rephaites who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei. He ruled over Mount Hermon, Selica, all of, all of Bashan to the border of the people of Geshur and Maaka, and half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Eshbon. So tonight, the seven that we're going to look at from Joshua 11, you've already heard of the Anakites. From Joshua 12, you hear of the Rephaites. That's not what's on my screen. Uh, I have a list that I want to show you. Let's see, we'll stop that cast and restart it and see what happens. <coughs> Amen. What would we do without a little difficulty, right? Uh, Sit back. There you go. Here are the seven designators we're going to talk about. Don't mind Microsoft Word. It doesn't know how to spell Hebrew. (laughs) And uh, the first are the Anakites. You're going to want to write this list down. The second are the Rephaites. Most of you studied your Bible for years and don't know who the Emites are, but you'll learn tonight. Zamzumites sounds like you made it up, doesn't it? Sounds like a bad Shaquille O'Neal movie. (laughs) Then a man named Anak, another man named Rapha, and a whole class of beings called Nephilim or Nephilim. Tell me when you've got the list. Mm-hmm. What number were you on? Four, seven, three. I heard three Emites, four Zamzumites, five Anak, six Rapha, seven Nephilim. All right, can I hand out some passages? Yes. Yeah. This is uh, going to get real, real fast. If you have a habit of reading the word and deciding that the word must be a little less supernatural than it says or that somehow or another there must be a more natural explanation you're going to have a very tough time with tonight Uh, because we're about to see that the word is entirely more supernatural than most people give it credit for amen and its subject matter is celestial as much as it is terrestrial. Happy birthday, Nolan. Happy birthday! All right. In celebration of uh, Nolan's birthday, let's read one of the saddest texts in all of the Bible. Uh, Cody, take Numbers 13, 22 through 23. Mario, take Numbers 13, 31 through 33. Uh, who else back there? Andrew, take Deuteronomy 1, 27 through 28. Justin Linton, take uh, Deuteronomy 2, 9 through 11. We'll give you some more after we finish those. Numbers 13, 22 through 23. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahim and Sh- Come on, Brother Barry. (laughs) (laughs) 
reach the valley of Eshimol, they cut off the branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. So, what is the scene? We're going into the promised land to taste of its fruit, to bring back some verification that it's every bit as good as the Lord said that it is. And one of the first things that you get are three specific names of people that are descendant from a man named Anak. And you get the impression, since there's no explanation, that Anak must be pretty famous. You know? I mean, because when you're reading this, you don't know who Anak is. You sure don't know who the three guys are. But to the biblical audience, these three names being associated with Anak meant something. To us, it just means three names that we laugh at when we try to pronounce, right? Something akin to, you know, if we're in um, Suriname, and I'm talking about General Schwarzkopf, or General Patton, or General MacArthur, that might mean nothing to them. They've never heard those names. But when I say that to you, you think of warriors, right? These were famous men in antiquity. And because they were famous men in antiquity, there's a point being made here. On our list of seven designators, we're now up to three because you have the Anakites, you have the Rephaites, and now you have Anak. Okay, let's take numbers 13, 31 through 33. These names are all going to begin to tie together. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They had said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked, looked the same to them. So now what we know about Nephilim is that they produced Anak. We know that Anak produced these other three guys, Right? And that there are people who are stronger than the Israelites, and that all the people in this area were of what kind of size? Great size. Great size. That's an interesting thing. Here we find out that the descendants of Anak are stronger than normal men, and that they're of great size. Further, a connection is made to something called Nephilim. We're gonna, that comes from an earlier passage in the Torah that we're going to unravel this evening. But as we're talking about this, when you heard the three names that were sons of Anak earlier, and they mean nothing to you, they must have been men of renown because they meant something to the writers. They meant something to the audience. They knew who it was immediately. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that they were big guys, very, very strong guys. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's go to Deuteronomy one twenty-seven. Who's got that one? Deuteronomy one twenty-seven. <coughs> you grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Are you hearing the repetitive theme here? At the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy now, we are comparing everybody they see to the Anakites, and they're saying they're stronger and taller than we are. We even saw the Anakites there. Apparently the Anakites were a race of people that were to be feared. They're stronger, they're taller, um, 
Some of their men's names are specifically known to the Israelite audience. And uh, Joshua, when he is working through the inhabitants of the land, is specifically told, you have to kill all these guys. Uh, they were marked by God for a reason. Okay? Uh, how about Deuteronomy 2, 9 through 11? Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given our to the descendants of Lot as a <laughs> Sorry, that to me that was funny. <laughs> the Emites used to live there. The who? Emites. A people strong and numerous, and as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites, but the Moabites called them Emites. You see how we're beginning to get these associations? These people are tall, they're strong, they're scary. Anakites. Well, there's another group of people called the Emites. They're also scary, like the Anakites. And by the way, Emites and Anakites are considered Rephites. Now, Again, this is so tough for us because none of these things are words that we kick around in our regular time, right? But it might help us to define Rephites. Uh, Matt, would you turn on that screen? <coughs> so Strong's number 7497. This is the root for Rephite. A masculine noun. In Hebrew it means giant. Rephite or Rephiim, is an ethnic designation. And there is a valley where the, the descendants tend to live, called the Valley of Rephiim. Frequently the term is only in plural, and it refers to a particular group of Canaanites that were in the Promised Land prior to the Hebrew conquest who were known for their unusually large size. So as you're starting to think about this, Rephiites are called giants in Hebrew. And then among the Rephites, there are Anakites who are apparently pretty um, prominent. So prominent that three descendants of Anak could be called out by name and everybody knew who it was. Like, oh, you saw those guys there? No wonder you were scared. Then the other people groups in the area, like the Moabites, they said, oh yeah, we've seen those guys too. We call them Emites. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's what we're doing. We're building our designators. There are seven of them. Let's go to Deuteronomy 2. Um, Tavo, read Deuteronomy 2, 17 through 22. The Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab and Haran. When you approach the territory of the people of Moab, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will give you, I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for possession. It was also counted as the land of Rephim. Uh, Rephim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zemzumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them for the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Sire. When he destroyed the Horites before them, they dis 
possessed them and settled in their place even to this day. Let's uh, let's begin to unpack that for a second. Earlier, when you enter the Moabite territory, I'm not going to give you their land uh, because they're running out Anakites. Here, I'm not going to give you the Ammonites' land because they're running out the Rephites. In other words, we have natural enemies of Israel, relatives that went astray, that fight with Israel for their whole history. But when God marches Israel through these lands, because these guys are fighting with this race of giants, God says, don't bother them. Right? They, they're doing a lot of things I don't like, but they seem to be doing something that I'm kind of with, so don't interfere. You know what else is very indicting about this? You know that Israel had a 38-year intermission of unfaithfulness, right? Do you remember why? They didn't want to fight with these giants. Do you know who did and was willing to go fight with the giants? The Moabites and the Ammonites. Sometimes the people of God show less courage than the people of the world. That's really sad, isn't it? But we're beginning to build a picture of just what was waiting in the promised land when they got there. And what Joshua has to deal with as he goes. And in general, what do we call all the inhabitants of the promised land? Canaanites. Canaanites. But there's actually seven nations there. And within the seven nations, there are other ethnic groups and designations, some of whom are giants and some of whom are not. In this passage, we add Zanzumites to our list and they get the designator just as tall as the Anakites. What does that tell you? They're giants. Okay. Caleb, take Deuteronomy 3, 8 through 13. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Samir. All the cities of the of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salaka and Idri cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan for only the for only Og the king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim behold his bed was a bed of iron is it not the Rabbah of the Ammonites nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth according to the common cubit let me interrupt there just to and keep your finger there. We're talking about 13 feet long, 6 feet wide, and made of iron. Are you getting an impression that Og, who was the last of the Rephites in that particular area, was a big dude? Yes. Who else in the Bible is described in a way that would fit in a bed 13 feet by 6 feet? What would you think about a biblical scholar that thought Goliath was just scaled, like David was a really short dude, so to him, Goliath looked like a big guy, but really Goliath was just six foot tall. What would you think about that? If we, if we accept that Goliath was a giant, if the Bible is going to clearly tell us that there were races of giants, seven of them, why would we begin to need to explain that away in some other way? Okay. Uh, pick up in 12. When we took possession of this land, at that time I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory belonging to the 
Eror, which is in the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. What does that tell you if it's called the land of Rephaim? It's a land of giants. Are you beginning to see why the Israelites were scared to go in? But the Lord told Moses, Moses told Joshua, and Joshua did what Moses told him. He's a type of Christ. He didn't care how big the giants were. You know who else didn't care how big the giants were? Caleb. Caleb. Hmm. Let's read about Mr. Caleb. Uh, Who's going to take that one? JJ, take Joshua 14, 10 through 12. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there. Their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. (laughs) He wanted to do it at, at 45. He wanted to do it at 85. Because he knew it didn't depend upon his natural ability. The Lord helping him. He'd drive it out and we love him for this. But I think somehow or another we scale back his accomplishment. At 85 years old, he went and took on giants and won. And his little son-in-law in his house, Othniel, had a giant killing spirit and shows up in the book of Judges doing the same thing. He watched an old man do it and he figured it was his turn. All right, who, who wants one now? Sam, take 1 Chronicles 20, verse 4. Uh, Chris, take 1 Chronicles 20, verse 8. We have giants being killed in the time of David, but not by David. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, huh? One of the descendants of the Rephaites. Apparently these guys were wide enough spread that in David's day, which is 400 years past Joshua's day, they're still encountering them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a termite problem, man. First <laughs> Chronicles 20, verse 8. These were descendants of Rapha and Gath. And they fell at the hands of David and his men. They were descendants of Rapha. There's another linguistic designator. In the region of what? Where was Goliath from? Gath, Ashdod. These were, in Gaza, these were three cities that they didn't root them all out of. And they show up later in biblical history. And they're still showing up today. Not necessarily giants, uh, guess we'd have to go walk the, the land and find out. But still, spiritual enemies of Israel, lobbing missiles at them. Uh, I want to show you the uh, definition for Rapha. Rapha, 7498. You can see that this word is related to 7497 earlier 
And it's a proper noun, but the way that you know it's a proper noun is by its usage. The actual word simply means giant, not large man. There's a lot of ways to say large man, not strong man. A lot of ways to say strong man, not valiant man, not mighty man. It means giant. By the way, in all of these places, in the Greek translation, it says giant. Uh, in many of the Textus Receptus driven English translations, it says giants. Mm. Okay. Uh, let's take our next passage. Who's got it? Who wants it? Uh, I'm trying to spread it out. Natalie, you take 2 Samuel 21, 16 through 22. Hey, uh, spearhead. Uh, when you think of a spear, you think of something like a javelin, right? Yeah. Put a shot put on the end of the javelin. This is between five and ten pounds, uh, most likely seven and a half pounds. How far could you throw that? I mean, do you, do you understand what we're saying here? What kind of man hurls a spear like that? Giant dude. Keep going. But Abishai, son of Zerah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibachai, the Cushitite, killed Soph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elanon, son of Jeral Orgum, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. I, I just want to give you a, a, a couple insights into that before we finish this. This is a different Goliath. It's at a different time in history. David's now an old man when this is happening. And it's, uh, it's actually one of Goliath's brothers. And you can prove that from the text. But let's talk about a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Anybody know how long a weaver's rod is? 26 feet. Picture that for a minute. Okay. Let's finish that passage. Verse 20. In still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Twenty-four in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shammah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. All right, now, I, I want to preach when I hear that. When I'm not going to, I just point it out for you. What city were they in? Gath. 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 Where was Goliath from? Gath. 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 Four giants left in Gath plus Goliath makes how many? Five. Uh, why do you think he picked up five stones? Yeah. He planned to kill them all. He's going to finish what Joshua didn't do. He's going to get it done in a single day. The problem is his four giants went and hid behind some very large rocks. <laughs> you know? and it took the rest of their life to hunt them down and find them, but they did it. Okay. 
You beginning to get a picture? There's no way to see Goliath as over nine feet tall, as wearing 100 pounds of armor, and see that as a miracle without acknowledging that there were races of them. That's a crazy thing. We have this view that the world is today as it always has been. That is not the case. Um, The four descendants of Rapha are apparently related to the other Goliath of Gath. Uh, Hence, David's five stones. Uh, When you consider the size of Ishib Benab's spear, uh, or... The other guys being 26 feet long, it's pretty hard to see these as normal guys. huh? In previous weeks, we looked at the extraordinary sin that the inhabitants of the land were committing. It's a sickening list. I want to show it to you one more time, that way I don't have to read it to you. These all come from Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 26. You know, it's sex with everything that moved. Uh, it's all kind of Awful things. This is usually why people say, well, Joshua had to go and wipe them all out because of these wicked practices. Well, that that has some merit to it. God even says some things like that. But what if there's a reason they're into these wicked sexual practices? What if this is the result of something and not the cause itself? We're going to have to look at our last linguistic designator to figure out what that is. We've covered six of the seven. And we've even noticed that the Moabites and the Ammonites were not to be interfered with when you go through their land because they were driving out uh, the list of seven. Something about giants was so offensive to the God of Israel that they're not allowed to interfere with their enemies when they walk through. I want to show you the list of seven one more time, and this time I'm giving you every scriptural reference that you can write down, every single one, not just the ones that we went through, but every one, you put it up, so that you can put them for your notes. In other words, you can search out each one of these races in every instance in the Bible. Anakites, Rephites, Emites, Zanzamites, Anak, Rapha, and Nephilim. This is every reference in the Bible to them. If Anak is a giant, what are his descendants called? Anakites and their giants. If Rapha is a giant, his descendants are called Rephites and they are giants. And we found out that Emites and Zanzamites are simply another word for them. The one word that we've not looked at and not defined is what Numbers 13 says, hey, all these guys came from something. They came from Nephilim. Did y'all catch that earlier? Yes. So we're going to have to look at what Nephilim is. And in it, I think we're going to find our motivator for why Joshua was told to exterminate certain groups of people. I mean, I walked into a Denham Springs Walmart one night and wasn't sure everybody in there was human, but I didn't think that they were of extraterrestrial origin. Come on. <laughs> I got your attention, huh, Kurt? Yeah, yeah. Uh, y'all got your list? No. I'll give you a minute. By the way, I firmly 
believe in a triune God. I firmly believe in the second coming of Jesus. I firmly believe in so many things that there are are fewer scriptures about than this. And I don't know very many Christians that affirm this. And you got to ask yourself why. Do we have a tendency to underplay the more supernatural aspects of the faith? Do we have a tendency to read past anything we don't understand or just turn to a commentary written by some dry old prune that tries to make you believe these people were just tall on the average? Was Goliath just tall on the average, really? That's why all Israel was scared of him? Say when, when you got it. You can be brave. Anybody still need to wait? It's okay. Okay, we'll wait. You just got to talk to me. It's a family meeting. It's easy for me. I typed them before you got here. If I had to stare at the screen and write, I don't know what I'd do. funny to read the notes in my Bible and realize that I wrote them at a time that it never occurred to me that I would later need a magnifying glass. (laughs) Anybody still need to wait? Yes, still wait. Good. We'll do that. condescending when he did that. Now, now I know he just couldn't see me. Had I known he couldn't see me, I, I might have been even less respectful. I'm glad I was laboring under a misunderstanding. We're close? Got it. Done? Everybody's cell phone's coming out. I got it. Got a graven image of it right here. Okay. <laughs> Let's pick up in Genesis 6 in verse 1. This is the um, <laughs> genesis of this subject. Sometimes technology. Um, when men, no, y'all read it. I don't have to read it. Somebody else read it. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Let's hold there for a second. There are splits in theology over that phrase. And I, I can't understand it. Matt, we're going to turn back on the screen. And you guys are going to have to pretend that this looks normal. It doesn't, but... I put it in Hebrew on the page that... You see how the little blue circle? 
uh, is beneath instead of beside. It moved somewhere between my desk and here. And I don't know how to get it back. So, um, I had circled in pink the daughters and circled in uh, blue. So we've got a real baby thing going. The sons. Um, when you were looking at that phrase, B'nai uh, Ha Elohim, that is sons of God. And there's nothing really particularly difficult about it in Hebrew. The question is, what does that mean, sons of God? And one whole branch of theology says, well, this is uh, the descendants of Adam through Seth. And all we're speaking about are Seth's descendants here. There is, of course, another group in theology that says, if that's the case, why is it set in contrast to something? B'nai ha Elohim, the sons of God, came to the what? Daughters of men. We're not just contrasting male and female. What is different? Their origin. One comes from God. The male in this partnering comes from a celestial source. And the female in this partnering, benot is the female way to say it, benot ha-adam comes from Adam. We're talking about daughters that were derived of terrestrial origin and sons that were derived of a celestial origin. Mm. Let me say it another way. It's okay. That's I, I want to make sure you get it. Yep. Sons of God in Hebrew here is clearly the offspring of something that is heavenly. Daughters of men, clearly in Hebrew, the offspring of something earthly. Yeah. Terrestrial, celestial. Mm-hmm. Celestial. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about that then, what would be the point of alternating that phrase if we were talking simply about sons and daughters of men? There'd be no point in it. It's the first time the phrase occurs in the Bible, and it's going to be an interesting phrase for the evening. Say it with me. Benai. Benai. Ha. Ha. Elohim. It turns out that in Christianity, we have vastly simplify what is in the heavens. To us, we see anything in the heavens that there are multiplicities of as some kind of bordering on polytheism. But consider this. If it's polytheistic to say that there are many things in the heavens, even many gods in the heavens, then what is the meaning of the most high God? Yeah. See, our most basic terms for God indicate that there are other spiritual beings, but our God is above those. Yes. More than that, our God created all that is. We're going to come back to that later. Here in this Hebrew phrase, what we're hearing is that something of heavenly or celestial origin cohabitated with earthly women. Think back up in Genesis. The sons of God saw that the daughters of these men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Do you hear um, Do you hear a choice on the women's part? No. You don't, do you? Who made the choice? Men. Were they men? It's a good question. I just 
Uh, apparently, it's not just on Earth that there's sexism. <laughs> I'm not saying it's right. I'm simply saying it's heavenly. That's, that's all. That's all. Recovering this as, as we get to this next verse. Benai ha-Elohim and Benod ha-Adom are terms of distinction regarding origin and lineage. Clearly, one is a descendant of things in the heavens, and the other is a descendant of things on the earth. So keep reading, Frank. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Apparently, something about this union displeased God. And he set a time limit on how long he was going to put up with it. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now hold on. When we say hero, we think of a good thing. When we say renown, we think of a good thing. But whatever these Nephilim are, they're the product, according to Genesis 6-4, of something heavenly, cohabitating with earthly uh, daughters of men, and the product was called a Nephilim. And what do we know? They were renowned. You ever wonder why, when you hear those three guys' names, the descendants of Anak, everybody was like, well, yeah, of course we don't want to go in there. Mm-hmm. Renown is not always a good thing. You can be renowned for a lot of things. It's like the difference between famous and infamous. Yeah. You know? But renown can be either one. Only context is going to tell you. I want to show you what New Unger's Bible Dictionary defines a Nephilim as. Nephilim. I always say Nephilim, but you can see he pronounces it Nephilim. The form of a Hebrew word denotes a plural, verbal adjective, or a noun of passive signification, certainly from the fall, to fall, to fall, so that the connotation is the fallen ones, clearly meaning the unnatural offspring that were on the earth in the years before the flood. The Hebrew word Nephilim means the fallen ones. Genesis 6 is a story about something that fell from its heavenly estate because it had unnatural relations with the daughters of men and the product was something of renown. But God didn't seem to like it. Now, before we go much further in that, just to tie these concepts together for you, Here's the Greek translation of the very same passage. And giants were upon the earth in those days. The Septuagint word there, 1095.2, is gigantes. In other words, if there was some doubt whether Rephaites or Rapha or Anak or Anakites were giants, when the Hebrews translated their scripture into Greek, they left no room for doubt. They said, we are specifically speaking about giants. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Yes. I have to wonder why, why this stuff is not taught to us. It's in the sixth chapter of the Bible. How could it be in the sixth chapter of the Bible and be ignored? Now, let me ask you this. 
before we get all the way into this, and we're going to. Amen. <laughs> it's difficult, Joshua's reaction. He's supposed to exterminate these guys, right? Yeah. Where did he get the idea? From God. Didn't God exterminate these guys? Yes. In Genesis 6, we have the selection of Noah, which is what we're going to get to. Who besides Noah and his family survived the flood? What if the point of the flood was to rid these guys from the planet? What if the point of Joshua's ministry in the promised land is to reoccupy a land that has been polluted from the celestial realm? And so you can't leave any of them alive because if they reproduce, we have an ongoing problem just like before the flood. That's an interesting hypothesis, don't you think? Uh, You can leave that on, Matt. Let's read a little more. Let's talk about the selection of Noah. Uh, Somebody pick up in um, 6-9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Anybody have a different translation? If you do, just call it out. I just want to hear it. Perfect in his generations. He was perfect in his generations. That's very interesting. That speaks to lineage. Perfect in his generations. I want to show you the two words here. Noah is righteous and Noah is blameless. In English, that makes very little sense. It's redundant. It's kind of poetic, right? Uh, If you're blameless, then you're righteous. If you're righteous, then you're blameless. These are not the same words in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the first one, righteous, is zadik. It's from where we get the word zedekah. It's Strong's number 6662. Thank God for the two. An adjective meaning just or righteous. Why it's translated righteous. And the term primarily deals with moral or ethical significance. Right? Like, we're not talking about the righteous brothers because they sing well. We're not saying that that food was righteous. We're, We're talking about morally pure, not just some descriptive adjective. That's not hard to understand, is it? Noah was morally pure? These are all of the references to uh, Zadik in the Bible. These definitions are coming from the complete word study of the Old Testament. Here's the second word, translated in English, blameless. In Hebrew, it's tamim. Strong's number 8549. An adjective meaning blameless, thank you. <laughs> That's why it's translated blameless. In over half of its occurrences, it describes an animal to be sacrificed to the Lord. Wow. Does an animal have to be morally pure to be sacrificed to the Lord? No. You ever ask your dog if he sent? <laughs> Can you imagine walking out to the goats and I have to take your confession before I... <laughs> I can. I've had some experience with it. Think on that for a minute. Just not goats on four feet. The kind that walk upright and eat pastors after church. Listen, I don't think that this word, this second word, refers 
to Noah's moral purity. I think it refers to his perfect physical purity. Yes. He was still descended completely from Adam. Mm -hmm. Nothing had entered into his geological, geological, his biological uh, makeup that was wrong. See, if the sons of God were cohabitating with the daughters of men, they're producing something that is a hybrid. Yes. Noah was both ethically pure and physically pure. That's why this word most often refers to the physical purity required of an animal sacrifice. And it's also why it seems redundant in English. Righteous and blameless, same thing. Maybe it would be more accurate to say he was righteous and physically pure. Or the way the Bible says that about animals is spotless. Blameless, yeah. spotless. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Now that you've got that, Imagine the world that we're talking about in Genesis 6. A world that is so overcome with some kind of celestial being interfering on the earth that you cannot even trust when you're talking to someone that they're a human being. Wow. Now you're starting to understand why God wiped out the whole thing and it was grief. See, that's bad. Now, as bad as the list of sins are in Genesis, in uh, Leviticus 18, 1 through 26, speaking of the inhabitants of the promised land, that may not be the biggest issue. The biggest issue might be that they learned those practices from fallen celestial beings that had intermarried into their races. In Genesis 6, 4, it happened at the flood, but in 6, 4... It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Well, how do we know they were on the earth afterward? Because as they come into the promised land, I just gave you seven different designators for them. Yeah. We see five in Gath alone, right? You see them there when they come to the promised land, 40 years later when they re-enter the promised land. You see them in the north of the promised land, you see them in the south of the promised land. What Joshua does when he enters the land is he cuts it in half. It's, it's kind of an interesting military maneuver. He separates the northern kings from the southern kings right away. He goes to town on the southern kings. They can't stand up to him. Then he turns his attention north. Much bigger battle as he races towards Hermon. But that's a whole other issue. And a lot of Jewish mythology says that this celestial falling out happened at Hermon. Wow. Whether it did or not, uh, I have no comment. I just know the battle got tougher as he moved in that direction. Okay? What I want to do now is uh, begin to put some of these together for you, okay? Brings us to an important moment. Now that we've established that a heavenly defection occurred and that it negatively impacted the human race, and you see that God's response was the genocide of the human race, can we really blame Joshua? For his response, obeying God, being picking out specific races that do not belong on the earth, period. Before we move on to even deeper subjects, and we're going to, I want to show you some ancient witnesses. Okay. Sorry, we're turning that off and on. I don't know what's next on the screen. This is Josephus. Handsome dude, right? It's a romanticized engraving of Flavius Josephus, according to uh, Wikipedia. 
Josephus is born in 37 um, A.D. He dies in 100 A.D. He's 63 years old. He had a few ladies in his life, apparently. You see that history there with his spouses. And um, look at what he wrote. Let me show you the... In the Antiquity of the Jews, this is what he wrote concerning Genesis 6. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust, and despisers of all that was good, on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called now, Josephus is a near contemporary to Jesus, an actual contemporary of, say, the Apostle John. He's writing about Jewish history in that day. He can write anything that he wants to, and you know what he says Genesis 6 is? Giants. And he said that it happened when um, something angelic defected and cohabitated with women. Then he makes another interesting connection. He says, this resembles what the Greeks say happened to create giants. We're going to get to that here in a minute. Wow. Now forgive me, I'm going to begin quoting from the book of Enoch. Okay? I want to go ahead and acknowledge to you the book of Enoch is not scripture. I'm not telling you it's inspired. In fact, it's clearly labeled on the screen pseudographia, which means other writing, something other than scripture. This is from the 18th chapter of the book of Enoch, beginning in the third verse. And they said to me, These are the Gregori, who with their prince, <laughs> Satan now, rejected the Lord of light. And after them are those who are held in great darkness on the second heaven. And the three of them went down onto the earth from the Lord's throne to the place Hermon and broke through their vows on the shoulder of the hill of Hermon and saw the daughters of men and how good they are, and they took themselves wives, and befouled the earth with their deeds, who in all times of their age made lawlessness and mixing, and giants are born, and marvelous big men and great enmity. And therefore God judged them with a great judgment, and they weep for their brethren, and they will be punished on the Lord's great day. Do you hear the consistency of these passages? By the way, the Bible quotes the book of Enoch several times. The reason it's likely not included in the canon is we have it in several versions and they don't agree with each other. In other words, we're not sure that we have an untainted text. Does that make sense? Next one. This is from the 106th chapter. Because I know that you are all going to run out right away and read the book of Enoch. I just thought I would give you the pertinent passages. I have already seen in a vision and made known to thee that in the generation of my father Jared, some of the angels of heaven transgressed the word of the Lord. And behold, they commit sin and transgress the law and have united themselves with women and commit sin with them and have married some of them and have begot children by them. And they shall produce on the earth giants, not according to the spirit, but according to the flesh. And there shall be a great punishment on the earth in the earth shall be cleansed from all impurity. Yea, there shall come a great destruction over the whole earth, and there shall be a deluge and a great destruction for one year. It's interesting that that is recorded, and that's exactly what the Bible says happened, huh? Okay. Um, 
Is this interesting to y'all? Yes. You don't want to put it away, huh? Okay, you want to finish. Moving to the 15th chapter. Wherefore have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and have lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughter of men, and have taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of the earth, and begotten giants as your sons? See, the ancient testimony is pretty replete, pretty clear, don't you think? Chapter 7. I was saving the best for last. The best always comes in sevens. You ready? And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. What does that sound like? Drug use. Pharmakia. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, whose height was 3,000 L's, whatever that is, who consumed, yeah, a bunch, bunch of L's, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when the men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. Do you know what we're speaking about now? They stole everything that man had and then began eating the men. By the way, the book of Revelation says that they did not repent of their idolatry even after the plagues, but they continued to practice their magical arts, their sexual immorality, their murder, and their thievery. I wonder where that parallels. Wow. It sounds very much like the book of Enoch in the seventh chapter. Did Jesus say that it would be as it was in the days of Noah? Yes. Enoch's writing from the days of Noah, if Enoch is to be believed. Maybe, maybe it's not to be believed. I'll leave that up to you. Uh, one that I know we can't believe, but oh, I thought that was the last. It's not. Uh, let me give you one more before we get to uh, Hesiod, the Greek historian. Amen. This is the ninth chapter of the book of Enoch, eighth verse. And they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with the women and have defiled themselves and reviled to them all kinds of sins. And the women have borne giants and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. Pretty consistent testimony. Here is Hesiod, somebody you probably can't believe. And yet at the same time, uh, it's interesting how mythology often mirrors the Bible, but is a corrupted version of it. Hesiod uh, is a poet thought by scholars to have been active between 750 B.C. and 650 B.C. So he's a contemporary to Isaiah. He's a contemporary to the prophet Homer. And um, ancient authors credit Hesiod and Homer with establishing Greek religious customs. The reason that's important is Hesiod was the first to begin writing about what the Greeks thought about the heavenly realm. And he's writing from an ancient perspective, 750 B.C. Zeus, son of Kronos, created yet another fourth generation on the fertile earth. And these were better and nobler. The wonderful generation of hero men, who are also called half-gods. The generation before our own on this vast earth. But of these two, evil war and terrible carnage took some. Then he goes on to talk about some ridiculous things. But my, my point is, from secular history, from other Semitic writings, and 
from the Bible, we see the same story. Some kind of heavenly defection occurred, mm -hmm. and what it produced on the earth was vile, but renowned. Okay? The ruling part. It's not that hard to believe that what is vile is renowned, is it? Yep. Look at our political system. Yeah. Today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can kill that, Matthew. Okay. Y'all ready to go deeper? Yes. Um, I taught a lot of this in a message called Nephilim and Other Ancient Accounts a long time ago. Uh, took a serious beating for it, but I, I've never minded that. Uh, because it's true. I mean, not my fault that people don't want truth. Uh, maybe we should keep it just to the plan of salvation every week and tell you saved people more ways that you can what, get saved? Uh, I want to examine the scripture. I want to learn it. But where this is going for me is I started to see, wow, if the God who is merciful and loving and wants all men to be saved doesn't want these, there's got to be a reason. And I started thinking about his motive. Then I realized in Genesis 15, why don't we just read that for a second? I didn't plan to, but we need to. In Genesis 15, when he's speaking to Abraham, he tells him about this. Uh, somebody start in 15, 12 and read through 16. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Mm -hmm. That's right. God says four generations before it happens that he's going to let his people get enslaved, then he's going to bring them out and into the promised land. If you're an enemy of God and you heard that, all you have to do is get between the promised land and Egypt, right? Uh, these nations are all between uh, the final conquest of the promised land and Egypt. It's as if the enemy planted giants here. And in planting giants along the way, was it successful? Yes, they left Egypt. In two years' time, they made it to the borders of the promised land. Why didn't they go in? Because of giants. They, they were scared. So they go march around for 38 more years. They come back, and this time their uh, unfaithful generation has died, and they're willing to go in and fight. But everywhere they turn, the enemy for 400 years has been planting uh, a hybrid kind of problem there. Yeah. And apparently they populate like rabbits. It seems to be the only thing that's written about them, hmm. is that they eat people and they make more of them. You know? Uh, I left out all of the more sensational things. I'm not a YouTube guy. I, I, I don't like it. I, I, that channel on TV where they always find some fruit loop to tell you something ridiculous about the Bible, I, I don't watch that stuff, okay? Uh, but the world is covered, literally covered, in ancient accounts of these things. Yeah. Okay? Um, I want to talk to you about um, defections, um, Destruction in deities. Ooh. That's what I titled tonight. Defections, destruction, in deities. 
because this helps us understand God's motive when he's dealing with Joshua and why Joshua had to on the earth do something. Okay. Um, Nolan, read Exodus 15, 17. Our mini topic here is the temple. Um, Judah, read 2 Samuel 22, 7. Peyton, read Psalm 15, 1. Uh, Keith, read Hebrews 8, verse 5. And um, Brandon, read Revelation 11, 19. <coughs> Call out your scripture so nobody misses it in their notes. Exodus 15, 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. All right, now you're astute Bible scholars. All of you. Or you will be soon. What is wrong with that statement's placement in the Bible? Where did you just read from? Exodus 15. He just read from Exodus 15. What did you hear in it? Say it again, Nolan. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. There's no sanctuary. I mean, we are talking about somewhere between 14 and 1600 B.C. And we don't have a temple even being thought of for another five or 600 years. So, what sanctuary are we talking about? There must be a heavenly sanctuary. Mm -hmm. In fact, it might be that the things that are built on the earth are a copy of the things that are in heaven. Mm -hmm. If that's true about architecture, I wonder what else it's true about. Yeah. Okay, Second Samuel 22, 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. David who had the plans for the temple that he passed on to Solomon, claims that God heard him from a temple that is God's temple before the temple was built. So certainly we're talking about a celestial temple, yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. Psalm 15.1. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy <coughs> earth? It's an interesting question. It's as if when they built the temple here, they were actually just representing a temple somewhere else. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. How about Hebrews 8? Hebrews 8, 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow mm -hmm. of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountains. Moses had to look at a pattern in the heavens. We've discussed this before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he had to make on the earth an exact replica of what he saw in the heavens. Do you know what that means? That means that if you look at what he built on the earth, it would be like looking into the heavens. Wow. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Let's think about some of the things that were on the earth. Was there a temple? Yeah. Was there a priesthood? Yep. Was there a body of 70 elders? Yeah. How far did the pattern extend. How much does the earth reflect what was in the heavens? That's good. Well, we can start to ferret some of that out with the scripture, but it did occur to me that Jesus Christ prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if 
many of the things on the earth are an exact replica of the things that are in the heaven. And we would tend to think of the heavens as perfect and the earth as flawed, and they might both be flawed. Yeah. That's a real problem. Well, let's get into it. So let's talk priesthood for a minute. We saw that there's a temple in both places. How about a priesthood? Uh, buddy. Oh, who had Revelation 11? It's, it's a pretty Peshat kind of scripture. And God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Read the first few words again slowly and loudly. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that pretty Peshat? Yeah. God's temple in heaven was opened. Then he hears thunder and he sees the ark inside. But this is, uh, we're no longer talking metaphor. No way to spiritualize this out. There is clearly a temple in the heavens. Amen. Now let's discuss a priesthood in the heavens. Uh, Kylie takes Psalm 110 in verse 4. Brenton. Take uh, Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Matthew, take Hebrews 9, 11 through 13. We could really just take the whole book of Hebrews, but we're not going to. Psalm 110, 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Mm. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Which begs the question, who's Melchizedek? Mm-hmm. Oh, he showed up in Genesis 14, right? And he, he uh, comes out of nowhere, and Abraham tithes to it. Do you remember what Genesis 14 is about, anybody? It's about five kings fighting against four kings. And Abraham sides with the oddest group of people, the, the folks from Sodom. And uh, do you know uh, why they were fighting with another guy? Kador Lamor. He had been taken over the Rephaite's territory. It's the first time Rephaite, first time giant, appears in the scriptures in that chapter. And a priest comes down, or shows up, however you want to see that, with Melchizedek. And Abraham and him make a covenant. I don't think that can be a coincidence. But in any case, Melchizedek is called the priest. You're going to hear that in uh, Hebrews. Really, that's Hebrews 7. I didn't give that to anybody. But read Hebrews 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Okay. Christ is considered a heavenly priest. Was he a Levite? No. 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 He can't be an earthly priest. The earthly priest had to descend from Levi, but the heavenly priest apparently could come in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. I don't quite know what the order of Melchizedek is, do you? No. Apparently, though, there's an order of priests in the heavens. It's kind of had that hard to have an order if there's only one. <clears throat> and how do we know there's not only one? Well, there's Melchizedek, and there's Jesus, and Jesus is over Melchizedek, so now we have at least two uh, there was an order of Melchizedek before Jesus was called the high priest and above it. In fact, before he was born as a man. So 
That's an interesting scenario, huh? Yeah. You getting the impression that the heavens might be a little more complex than you thought? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. How about uh, Hebrews 9, 11 through 13? When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. Oh, my goodness, not a part of this what? Creation. Let that sink in for a minute. It begs the question, which creation is it a part of? Okay, keep wow. going. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls, I mean, blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. I think from these scriptures, and you should read Hebrews 7 sometimes to better understand Melchizedek, from these, you can clearly see that not only was there a temple in the heaven and a temple on the earth, but there's a priesthood in both places, right? Which begs the question, what else is there that you can look at on earth that is also in the heavens that maybe we haven't clearly seen? Okay, uh, can I give you three more scriptures? Yes. Ella, crackers. Number 16, 2 through 3. Cassidy, Micah 2, 5. And... Uh, Olivia, um, Psalm 111, verse 1. That kind of uh, gives you a little law of prophets writing, something, something. Number 16, 2 through 3. Cassidy, Micah 2, 5. You started wherever you like, honey. That is a mother's prerogative. said they were all holy, but were they? The earth had to open up and swallow them. Right? Now, there's a reason we're covering that. If there was a temple on the earth and there was in heaven, and there's a priesthood on earth and there was a priesthood in heaven, something that shows up in Israel's history over and over and over called the assembly is the assembly of elders or the assembly of leaders. And what if there's an assembly of elders or assembly of leaders in the heavens. What if they claimed to be holy on earth and not all of them were? And maybe they claim to be holy in the heavenlies and not all of them are? Let's see. Uh, what was Micah 2 5? We're still talking natural assembly, natural council. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. A punishment in Micah was that there would no be, nobody be left to assemble that could make God's decisions. Okay, uh, Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Do you hear how they speak of the assembly, the assembly, the assembly? In Jewish literature, what's called the great assembly are the 70 elders. In fact, how many of you have read the Ethics of Our Fathers or the Pirkei Avot? A few hands in here. It, it begins with... Uh, 
what what Moses received from the Lord, he passed on to Joshua. What Joshua received from Moses, he passed on to the men of the great assembly. Yeah. That's how they refer to their governing body, right? Um, now, let's read Psalm 89. Let's do this one together. Um, who wants to read it out loud for us? Uh, Sam, take Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8. <coughs> Y'all still with me? Yeah. Yes. We're an hour and a half in, and we're starting to stack concept on concept. So if you get a little dizzy or something, let me know. Psalm 89, 5-8. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord, God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. It sounds an awful lot like God has an assembly of heavenly beings around him, doesn't it? Psalm 89 makes that pretty clear, and after all, that's what was built on the earth, too. Well, There are 70 elders in Israel. There are 70 nations in the world. The Bible never says that among those heavenly beings that there are 70. Uh, But you you might have to wonder if a pattern follows the way that it does, right? God has a temple, a priesthood, and an assembly on the earth, and he has one in the heavens. Now, I would love to believe that the heavenly one is amazing. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me hand out a few passages. We'll do them across the front row. Kim, take 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. Buddy, take 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Uh, Frank, take Jude 6. Uh, JJ, take Job 4, 18 through 19. Matthew, take Job 15, 15 through 16. Then Gabriel... You're going to take us to Deuteronomy 32.8. You still with me back there, Curtis? Yes, sir. Deuteronomy 32.8, Curtis. First Peter 3, 19-20. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What is the only story that we have around the time that Noah was building the ark that this could be talking about? We have spirits in prison because they disobeyed long ago. Well, where did they come from? They had to be sons of Elohim, Benai Ha Elohim, who didn't do what he said to do. Right? Do we have a story like that in the Bible? Yeah. Is it attested to in history? Yes. Oh yeah. Well, if the heavens are perfect, then how did that happen? Uh-oh. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, what's our next one? Uh, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned... But now, were sin you ever taught in Sunday school that angels couldn't sin? Mm-hmm. I was. Yeah. I, w- I was taught that they didn't have free will and all that... I found out you'd get anybody to teach Sunday school, though. <laughs> I mean, I did. Like anybody. You show up with donuts, man. You teach, you know. Okay. If he did not, 
So if he did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when, when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Okay, we can pause there. Do you see we're talking about the same event? We have a flood. This time they're called angels, not spirits. And it might be both. Might have been angels and spirits. I don't know that I understand the difference between those two things. I'm working on that. Okay, how about Jude? Verse 6. 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, the judgment on the great day. Of course, if they didn't keep their position of authority, what must they have once had? <laughs> Apparently, angels are not once saved, always saved. If they abandoned their own home, then they had a home to abandon. This speaks of something in the heavenlies not doing its job, coming to the earth and spreading what was heavenly misconduct to misconduct on the earth. Wow. And God did not like it. And at some point, he wiped out everything, but it happened again. More than one heavenly defection. Mm-hmm. And so his plan with Joshua was you hunt them down and you kill them all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. How about Job 4.18 and 19? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more are those who live in houses of clay whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. All right. Now, how many of you know what how much more is in Hebrew? (laughs) You guys are great. (laughs) If, If angels can be charged with error, if their corruption can be detected by God, how much more men that are made of clay? See, if there's error in the heavenlies and it spreads to the earth, it multiplies on the earth. Mm-hmm. They are in a place that they can see the heavenly reality. You're in a place you can't. Yeah. When they taught man drug use and cannibalism and murder and thievery, it apparently spread like wildfire. Maybe what was a localized problem in the heavens had become a global problem on the earth. Mm-hmm. So why would God say you can't make a treaty with any of these people? Don't you dare do it. Because he knew our propensity for this contaminant to spread, and it was both spiritual contaminant and a genetic contaminant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, how about Job fifteen fifteen? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man, who is vile, corrupt, who drinks up evil like water? Did you hear that the heavens are not pure in God's eyes? Now this is such an interesting thing. Because we think of the heavens as perfect. No, God is perfect. Heavens are not perfect. In fact, they've got some problems. Whenever Revelation 12 occurs, and we argue about that, I believe it occurred at the cross, we tossed one big problem out of the heavens. But up to that point, like in the book of Job, we still got a real problem in the heavens. In the book of Zechariah, still got a real problem in the heavens. We have a real problem in the heavens often. And you know what? It had spread to the earth. Incidentally, in the creation story, we have a snake uh, who is more subtle than the others, other animals, and he is a mouthpiece. We find out in the book of Revelation for certain 
that the devil is called that ancient serpent, which ties it back to the Genesis story. Did sin originate in man, or did it originate somewhere else and spread to man? There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil there already. Certainly a snake sinned before the man did. And if the snake didn't sin, he was just a victim, right? Because everybody's a victim now. <laughs> Certainly whatever was influencing the snake was sinning before man sinned. Yeah. Okay. So what we have are contaminants in the heavens greatly affecting the earth. And God has decided to take a stand on the earth and use that to purify even the heavens. Amen. So he sent a man, he entered into a man who would begin purifying the earth and ascend into the heavens and purify the heavens too. Okay, we're going to get to that in a minute. Did you have a question? I wanted to see how this kind of related to us our glorified bodies. We're going there. Give us a little while. When we are glorified, we are above these problems. And we actually judge them. Yeah. But let's, let's get there. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32.8 because Mr. Curtis Carter asked me to lunch a couple months ago. He dropped a bomb on me and I did what pastors do. I said, you're wrong. (laughs) He said, why is it wrong? I said, well, here are three problems with what you're teaching. And he said, well, pastor, I just want to get it right. I said, me too. I'm going to go study, you go study, but sit on this for a while. And for that whole time I've been studying and Curtis was not wrong. Okay, Uh, I made a mistake that is easy to make. When we look at the words of Jesus and we interpret everything that we see in the Older Testament in light of the words of Jesus, we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Yeah. Okay. The words of Jesus should be understood in the light of everything else in the Bible. See, the order of revelation helps you understand the revelation. And if you turn to the last chapter and read the last chapter and then the second to last, then the third to last, it gives you a distorted view. If you let the story unfold as God unfolds it, then suddenly at the end of the story you have the tools you need to understand it. And it's taken, look, I got into every manuscript you can get into. I've been fighting with the NA-27, the Textus Receptus, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've been talking about the Masoretic Text in my house now for a couple months. And I'm pleased to say none of it is that complicated. <laughs> hey, it's not. It's not. I made it complicated. Deuteronomy 32 8. When the Most High gave the nations. Oh, hold on, hold on. What was that, Curtis? When the Most High provided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the balance of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So. In Deuteronomy 32.8, which Curtis just read and I'm trying desperately to get to, Moses is speaking, and uh, it's his final song. And um, he kind of goes in the order of creation, which is interesting, but I just want to start in verse 7. And Curtis read it. We're going to look at each of your translations so you might see some differences. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations of long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain it to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, Curtis translation said sons of Adam, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number 
of the sons of Israel. Does anyone else have a different translation then? What you got? Sons of God. Sons of God. If it's sons of God, then we would have another passage that begins talking about the sons of Adam and ends up talking about the sons of God. Mm. A very interesting little contrast there. So the question for me became, well, which is it? Which should this phrase be? Should it be sons of Israel or should it be sons of God? And the manuscripts are a little bit split on it. And you get all kind of arguments like, well, more of the manuscripts say this than this. Yeah, but which one's right? (laughs) Well, the oldest manuscripts say this, and those arguments work that way. I began with a little simpler question just a couple days ago. In Deuteronomy 32.8, when he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance when he divided up all mankind. About that, there's no argument, not in any manuscript. When did it happen? When did the Most High divide the nations, and when did he give them an inheritance? Watch this. In Genesis 6, we have our first mention of sons of God. You remember that? That's why I started way back there. In Genesis 7, 8, and 9, what is this story of? What is Genesis 7, 8, and 9? Flood. Don't fall asleep? What happened? Oh, that's supposed to be a 9. I'm 7 happy. <laughs> Why is six afraid of these guys? The sons of God in Genesis 6. Then in Genesis 7, 8, and 9, we have a flood. Anybody know what Genesis 10 is about? It's the nations. You know how many there are? You know how many elders there were in Israel? Interesting. What is Genesis 11? This is Tower of Babel. Anybody know what uh, 12 is? The beginning of Israel. So in Deuteronomy, I was thinking, when was the dividing of the nations? Do you know one of the ways the nations are divided? In the book of Revelation, what's before the throne? What has to be preached to everyone? Every tongue, tribe, and nation. Every what? Language. When we divided the languages and we divided the nations, the nations are enumerated in chapter 10 and chapter 11. They are divided. When they're divided, there are 70 of them. And their languages separate them. That's an interesting thing. If that's what we're talking about, and I don't know what else it could be, then that means when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number, let's just for argument's sake say sons of Israel. Was there an Israel when that happened? No. How do we set up boundaries according to the number of sons of Israel if there is no Israel? In fact, the man who is the grandfather of Israel is the next chapter. Do you follow the problem with it being Israel? So let's assume for a minute that it's sons of God. That here, sons 
of God should appear. What we have is in Genesis 6, we have some kind of defection in the heavenly council that corrupts things on earth, so God floods the earth. He starts again with only Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their descendants. And at the Tower of Babel, what Genesis 32, 8 would be saying is, when he divided each nation, he did it according to the number of the sons of God. Mm. In other words, he signed a heavenly presence to each nation. Wow. The question becomes why? Let's read Psalm 82. Amen. That's good. Are y'all interested? Yes. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. What? Where is this assembly? God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the... (laughs) Rob says little g. You know what there's not in Hebrew? A little g. It's Elohim and Elohim. Come on. You only know from context. Okay? But think through this for a second. God is now showing up in his heavenly council that is the Psalm 89 uh, assembly and something's about to happen. He gives judgment. Do we already know we have a purity problem in the heavens? Do we already know that there have been defections before? Do we already know that the flood is kind of a reboot? Now right after the flood, Noah gets a little drunk. Don't blame him. You you weren't on that boat. Okay. (laughs) The whole world gets divided up And Deuteronomy is referring to that time period. And listen to what happens in Psalm 82. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. What if God is angry because he's given them some kind of responsibility to help lead the nations in righteousness, lead them towards him? And they don't do it. They do not uphold the things that God says. So what does he tell them? You're going to die like regular men, ordinary men. I'm going to bring an end to you the same way that men have a finite lifespan. And what else did it say? The foundations of the earth were shaken. Have you ever wondered why a nation worships a god the way they did? Like, you've been to India and seen some of those things? Yeah. You know what else is in Deuteronomy 32? Somebody pick up Deuteronomy 32, start in verse 16 and read through 18. That made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with the detestable idols. They sacrificed the demons, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Now, I just want to point out a couple things. Now, I'm going to show you fact and then show you conjecture. Right now, I'm in conjecture. 
If the nations happen in Genesis 10 and they're divided up and there are 70 of them, how many of people in the assembly would you expect to be assigned to the nations? 70, Seven, right? You know who's not in there? Israel. Because they don't exist. They come into being after the fact and God says they're my nation. Ooh. Come on. <laughs> so all the heavenly beings were assigned a nation, but Israel was God's nation. Now you know why he is so mad when they begin to worship the gods of the people around. Because they're not gods at all. In fact, they worked for the Most High God. Come on. And they're rebelling. And the people are siding with them. You can kind of feel the truth of that, can't you? Yeah. Okay, let's take a, a, a few more. Let's, let's hand them out. Am I wasting your time? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Kylie, take Psalm 96, verse 5. Uh, Joyce, take Psalm 106, 37 through 39. Steve, take 1 Corinthians 10, 20, verse 20. And um, Joshua, Take uh, Revelation 9, 20, and 21. Psalm 96, 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All of the nations, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Is it just an idol or is it a god? Well, God presides in the assembly of gods and he rebukes them all because they did not do what they were supposed to do. And he picks a nation for himself that he's going to lead, but that nation is influenced by those gods. We have the same kind of warfare in the heaven for the soul of the nations that we have on the earth for the soul of the nations. It's it's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Okay. How about uh, Psalm 106, verse 37 through 39? They shed innocent blood blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. I want to read you a slightly different translation that says the same thing, but more pointedly. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. In other words... If what we're saying is true, and that at the Tower of Babel there was some kind of celestial assembly, and everybody is given a responsibility, the nations of the world ended up sacrificing their children in worship of these things that were actually supposed to lead them towards God. Israel sees that and does the same thing, even though they are actually in contact with God himself, no mediator. You, you begin to see why he hates idolatry and he calls it prostitution. Yeah. Why he says as they go into the promised land, you must not do the detestable things that they do. Why he says you must destroy every single member of these ethnic groups. See, that provides motive, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. I'm going to show you what I had a problem with and where I think the biggest objection is here in a minute and how the Lord resolved it for me. Okay. Uh, who had 1 Corinthians 10? We'll get to it in just a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. No, 
But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. See, on one hand, Paul treats uh, food sacrificed to idols as no big deal. On another hand, writing in a, a, a slightly different audience, a slightly different subject, but, the, but related, he says, no, these are actually celestial deities. There's some kind of heavenly power. Exactly what an angel is, exactly what a demon is, and exactly what a spirit is, very debatable thing. But those spiritual powers are behind national idolatry. Mm. Okay? Um, Revelation 9, 20 through 21. The rest of mankind were not killed by the plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. It's interesting. They didn't stop worshiping those idols, and they didn't stop murdering, which Enoch said they were doing back then. Their magic arts, which is what I think all of the talk of the roots and the charms is, their sexual immorality, which is uh, how that happened, uh, or their thefts which Enoch said in the seventh chapter is what they were doing. Then they started eating us. Yeah. At least Revelation doesn't mention that yet. Mm. Of course, you can turn on the news on any given day right now, yep. and human beings are cannibalizing other human beings. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Look, where we're going with all of this, I don't think we have time, but you're familiar with this. There's some things we need to get to. In Daniel 10, Daniel prays for 21 days, and who shows up? Michael. It's not Michael. Not Gabriel. An angel. An angel. An angel shows up and he says, Man, Daniel, you're highly esteemed. I set out for you from the day you set yourself to humble and gain understanding. Which, by the way, was 21 days ago. Sorry, I'm a little late. The problem is, is the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece resisted me. The word prince there is the same word for... Uh, in Psalm 82, uh, you will die like mere man, like every other ruler. Mm. Same word. Ruler, is, is same word is uh, Hasharim, I think. In, in both places. Okay. So Angel is fighting with two other principalities to get to Daniel, and it slows him down. And he said, hey, I wouldn't have got here except Michael, he came to help me. And when Michael helped me, I got here. When I leave... Oh, the Prince of Greece is going to come and fight as well. Nobody stands with me except Michael, mm-hmm. who two chapters later he says is your prince, the prince who watches over God's people. But he's also called the prince, the same word as in Psalm 82. Okay? Now, my point here is, this points to a kind of pantheon in the heavenly realms that God is the head of, that he is in control of, but there is a rebellion that is occurring and infighting between them. And it has spread to the earth. They've decided in some way that they're going to prove their point through the proxy of the human drama. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. And after all, that is kind of what God decided to do, isn't it? Enter humanity to prove something to the heavenly? Yes. Isn't that what Ephesians 3.10 says? Yeah. Okay, have we blown your mind yet? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Try it. Um... I don't think I want to talk about 70 elders. We'll do that at another time. Let's take John 10. Let's put this on the screen, Matthew. John 10, 
So when Brother Curtis begins to tell me he thinks that Deuteronomy 32 might be sons of God, and I'm like, oh, poor Curtis, you can't be right, you know? <laughs> uh, this was my objection. Okay? I love that y'all are as patient with me as you are. I mean, uh, I love Curtis teaching. I always have. And it's always hard when somebody tells you you're wrong. And um, the, the truth is, is he wasn't wrong. I was wrong, but you don't know that until... Sometimes you need to be challenged in life. Amen. Okay? If you ever get to the place you can't admit you're wrong, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> in John 10, beginning in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's forget all mystical teaching you've ever heard about this. And in the most plain sense... What does it mean when you say that you're one with someone? Same, equivalent, yes. equal, right? Yes. Anybody deny that? Okay. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. How did they understand him saying he was one with the Father? How did they understand it? He's God. Now I have a question for you. Was he going to back down from that statement? Or do you think he affirms that he's God? I've had a little problem in my translation. I have always read Deuteronomy 32.8 as he divided the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel because it's how it's written in my text. What that meant to me was there's a numerical relationship between the number of people that are going to be saved on the planet and every Israelite. Mm. I drew a text from like uh, Romans 11, when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, he again turns his attention to the Jews, and the 144,000 in Revelation 7, and so I, I felt like I was on pretty good footing with that. I also noticed that in Psalm 82... He says, you're going to die like a mere man, an ordinary, regular man. Here they call him a mere man. And so I had a whole theology beginning to develop around that. Okay, If, though, the first thing that I ever read was not John 10, mm. it was Deuteronomy 32, then the first thing that I would encounter is that sons of God shows up in the law at least twice. It shows up in Genesis 6, and it shows up in Deuteronomy. Then it shows up in the writings, Right? And God is presiding among the gods right there. That would have formed my point of view. Which means when I got to this next part, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? Now, Nick's not allowed to answer this because I gave him a hint earlier. Is it written in the law, I have said you are gods? Is that really written in the law? It's in the Psalms. It's not in the Torah, is it? That's interesting, isn't it? Now, some of you are more familiar with the Hebrew books than others. The Torah, the Nevin, and the Ketuvim. Five distinct areas of the Hebrew Bible called the Tanakh. The first five books in Greek, Pentateuch, in Hebrew, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they do not say, I have called you gods. They don't say that. So when this says, law, it does not mean the Mosaic Law. Okay? Now follow me here. I'll tell you what it means in a minute. 
Is it not written in your law, something other than the Mosaic law, I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I'm God's son? The way I had read this was that Jesus was very slick. He was arguing with them. And since their law said that God had sons, then he's not guilty of blasphemy. He's not saying anything more than what their law says. That's how I've read this. The problem is, is that would mean that he is not saying he's God. Does that make sense? Yes. He's backing away from his claim. Is that how they understood him? In verse 39, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Why are they trying to seize him if all he's doing is quoting their Bible? They're trying to seize him because he's still claiming that he is God. And I just failed to understand how. You ready? Is it not written in your law? This word is nomos. Nomos can certainly mean the Mosaic law. It can also mean rules, instruction. In a very loose sense, you you could be saying in your book, right? Is it not written in your book, your instructions, your law, I have said you are God's? The answer to that question is obviously yes. yes. Where is it written? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, who are the gods to whom the word of God came in Psalm 80? See, he in Psalm 82, God gives his logos to the gods, indicting them. Wow. Does that make sense to you? Goodness. It took me a while to get it. In Psalm 82, the word of God is coming from his mouth to the heavenly assembly. And he calls them gods. Now, and the scripture, this is a third word. The scripture here is graphia. It means writings, which is the way a Greek would say, ketuvim. And the Psalms, the scriptures, cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sin in the world? What he is actually saying to them is this. In your book that you're holding in your hands, there is a passage that says, I have called them gods. If he says that inside of the writings to people that he's referring to as gods, what do you think about me since God sent me here as his only son? Mm. He's actually doubling down on his argument. He's not backing away from it. He's saying, if they're in the heavenly assembly, I'm the only one that he has sent personally to you. I believe they understood it that way because they tried to kill him for saying it. If he, if he said, no, 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 it's just a term. It's just a, see, I read this as, uh, is it not written in your law I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of came, God came, I read that as the people who received the Bible were called gods. That is not what it means. The people who received the Bible have a word in their Bible directed to a heavenly being called a god. And Jesus is claiming to be above that. Mm-hmm. He's claiming to be the Son of God above those gods. Mm-hmm. Okay? Take it apart for a while and you'll get it. Yes, Cass? The distinction between little-ass sons of God and big-ass son of God 
only begotten son, not necessarily in this passage, but um, because Jesus took on flesh, he becomes the capital S son of God compared to the sons of God? What you need to know is that those distinctions don't appear in this text, but it is distinguishable between the word order. There's a difference between saying son of God and God's son. Okay? But what is clear from their reaction, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp, is they understood him to not back away from his claim for deity, but actually to up it. Yeah. Okay? I'm telling you that the key is in these three words, just to help you one more time. Find them. Nomos here can mean a collective rule or instruction. We know that it is not the Pentateuch. We know here that it's not the Mosaic Law because that's not where this is written. It's written many years after the Mosaic Law. Do you follow me? The Psalms come way, way after Moses' instruction. So is it not written in your nomos, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the question is, in the passage, who is God speaking to? People that claim to be, that are gods. And the scripture, that word is graphia, the writings, the psalms, and the writings cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father set apart from the gods as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? In other words, you should already be able to accept this. There's lots of heavenly beings. Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. The other heavenly beings in Psalm 82 did not do what the father said. But if I do it, if I do what he does, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand. Now here it goes. That the father is in me and I in the Father. See, he's not backing away from his claim uh, of divinity. He's saying, I'm more divine than anything else in the heavenly beings. That's incredible. Goodness gracious. I want to show you some things about it. You may take some time to... Look, it took me months to work this out. Curtis, do you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. (laughs) I tell you I was wrong? You still love me? Amen. Let's go get some lunch. Uh, Let's move towards the closing. Okay. Jesus doubled down on his claim to divinity by saying that in their Tanakh contains a word from God to the sons of God and the Psalms cannot be separated from the canon. That's how I read that. Uh, I think he's saying there is a heavenly council of beings. You acknowledge it. It's in your book. God spoke to them in your book and I'm different from them because I'm standing in the Father and He's standing in me. He he took it higher. He took it further. I'd like to talk to you about higher and further. Not only am I not a polytheist, I want you to get this. I don't think that there needs to be only one heavenly power for there to be only one true God. (laughs) Okay. The others, to start with, uh, Genesis 2, verse... Four, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The what and the what? Heavens Heavens and earth. When it says heavens, it's everything in the heavens. When it says earth, it's everything in the earth. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. 
Who made every heavenly power? Yahweh did. The Lord God did. So he is by nature better than all of them. Superior to all of them. Above all of them. How about Deuteronomy 10, 14? To the Lord your God belong the heavens. He owns them. Even the highest heavens. The earth and everything in it. You follow me? If some got out of their heavenly abode, some are in their heavenly abode, some are right on the right page, some are not, they all see he owns them. He made them, he owns them. It's like, you know, an ant trying to kick against the elephant. It's not going to work. He yeah. owns them. Um, Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. What does that tell you about our God? Come on. Whatever there is in all the vast heavens, he's above it. Amen. 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 But that doesn't mean that men don't worship other things in the heavens and that they're not the idols of the nations and that God doesn't hold those heavenly powers specially responsible because they know better. He does. Okay? And that's been going back as far as maybe Babel. Psalm 108, verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and let your glory be over all the earth. That's not just poetic. That shows up throughout the Psalms. You're the highest thing in the heavens, and your glory needs to be over every area of the earth. See, these things are working against that. They're working to taint the heavens and corrupt the earth. God, who is above the heavens, is working to spread his glory on the earth through you. Genesis 14, 18 through 20. At the appearance of Melchizedek, after the battle between the five kings and the four kings, where Rephites are first mentioned, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, no communion meal, a grape juice if he was Baptist. He was a priest of Most High God, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High. He's called Most High God, and God Most High. It's like any order we put it, what are we saying? He's God above the gods. Creator of heaven and earth, just so we don't get confused. And blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Among whatever heavenly pantheon there is, there's one that is above all the others, and that is the God of Israel. Amen. Amen. Psalm 97, verse 9. For you, O Lord, are the Most High God over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. See, it's shocking the number of times the Bible speaks of other gods, isn't it? It's not just creative speech. There are other things jockeying for men's attention and worship. Why? That's a whole other subject. But God is above them. And he entered humanity by way of Jesus And he's bringing, this goes to Joshua's point earlier, he's bringing humanity above them as well. And you will sit and judge them, which is where we're going with this. Notice how even the demons interact when they see Jesus. Luke 8, 28. When when he saw Jesus, 
He cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. You know, that's not the, the talk of somebody who is confident that they're on equal playing field, is it? Mm-hmm. Hebrews 1.4 So he became as much superior. Say superior. superior. He became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Mm-hmm. That is actually what he's saying in John 10. Mm-hmm. If those guys are called gods, yeah. and I and the Father are one, I'm superior to them. See, he's not backing away from the claim of divinity. He's upping it. Amen. It's like, oh, did you think I was saying I was divine like one of the heavenly beings? No, no, you've misunderstood. I'm divine like Yahweh himself. That's why they tried to kill him. Okay. I probably should have just put Hebrews 1.4 right next to John 10. That would make better sense. How about the way... Shaul Paulus of Tarsus says it. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. See, whatever is there, he's the head. And... uh, in Korah's rebellion, Man. they rebelled against Aaron, but what, what happened to them? The earth ate them. He has a bad day. And Aaron's staff, which was dead, bore uh, almond buds. It resurrected to prove that he had authority over them. That is the gospel story over and over. Not that there are no celestial challengers, that there are none who can win. Okay? Um, let's close with Ephesians 1. Verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. By the way, what do you think I'm saying his will is now? He's going to prove his wisdom to everything in the heavens through the church. Okay? He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Here's the key phrase. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. See, he's quenching a rebellion in the heavens and he's quenching a rebellion on the earth by gathering everything in the heavens and on the earth under one head, Christ. Paul says to the Corinthian church, don't you know that you'll judge angels? Those who stand in Christ end up seated with Christ above everything. And you will call into account an idolatrous heavenly being that led India astray. You think we're to be careful how we live? Think about your high calling. Corinthians also says the angels longed to look into this. They didn't understand it. Mm. And if the rulers of this age had understood, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. They didn't know what they were doing. Now, there are a lot of different directions that are speculative that we can take this. And what is clear is in Genesis 10 and 11, it does not say in Genesis 11 that there were angels interacting anywhere in this. But Moses does point to it. And watch our order here. In Genesis 5, we have the death of Adam. 
Okay, that's his lineage. In Genesis 6, we have the total corruption of the human race. In 7, 8, and 9, we have God judging the human race and starting over with a righteous, blameless man. All the nations spread out from him and again fill the earth, 70 of them. So Moses says in chapter 11 that the sons of God uh, had something to do with the division of humanity. And then you see in the same chapter God rebuking the nations for worshiping idols. And you see in the writings God rebuking the sons of God for not acting rightly. Yeah. That part is nearly incontrovertible. Among the 70, Israel was not listed. Israel was created outside of this system to be with God alone in the 12th chapter. And the big problem that God had with his own people is although he was their only king, they wanted to be like the nations that were around them, which was a lower station, a lower calling, and was offensive because they're prostituting themselves to a spiritual power beneath Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh man. man, if there's anything out of all of that, and that's not your grandmother's Bible study, right? No. If there's anything out of all of that, it is that you have a high calling in Christ. That's not digging dumpsters. Let's not dwell in offenses. Let's not go for the base, lower fruit on the lower branches. Thank you, Jesus. Let's strive for perfection. Let's fight to get this right. Let's not any of us be found cowards that shrink back. This is a serious call to come into Christ. It's not fire insurance. You are straightening out the universe. Yeah. That's incredible. It's worth giving it your all, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. Stand up and we'll pray together.